Welcome to Season 2 of Diversity Dialogue, Cub Edition Podcast, brought to you by the Office of Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Detroit Jesuit High School and Academy. I'm Dr. Denise Williams-Mallet, the Director of the Office of Diversity and Inclusion and Diversity Union Club Moderator. The Office of Diversity and Inclusion is so proud to offer programs that will help harness the ideas and voices of our young men to champion change. This podcast is designed to give voice to a generation that wants to transform the world. The student-led podcast offers a platform for fresh ideas, collaborations, and dialogue. Each episode will be hosted by the show's host, Diversity Union President, Jacob Manastra, Class of 2022. Jacob will give the leaders of our student organizations, our students, parents, and alumni an opportunity to address, explore, and voice their perspective on today's diversity, inclusion, and belonging topics during the podcast. I am so proud and excited to present to you the host of Diversity Dialogue, Cub Edition, University of Detroit Jesuits' very own Jacob Manastra. Good afternoon, Mr. Bajoko. Welcome to our podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Happy to be here. Nice, so to, nice to show up back at the, the old high school and see all the changes. Everything looks great. Yeah, yes, it does. A lot of changes. So uh, I guess start off, just ask you a bit about, you know, your background, you know, um, your experience here maybe, and, you know, what got you into the line of work that you're doing today? Sure. So I uh, started at U of D when I was in seventh grade. I came to the academy. Yep. That would have been in the mid-90s. can't remember exactly what year I was when I was in seventh grade. Um, but I graduated in the year 2000, the class of 2000. Yeah. It was kind of a big deal at the time. Everybody was making a big deal about the class of 2000. And, right. Um, you know, interestingly, like when I started here, uh, you know, the rise of the internet was kind of happening at the same time that we were going through high school. Yeah. And so, you know, we had like a computer lab. I don't know if you guys still have computer labs here. Now, we do, but, actually, yeah. Uh, you know, it was dial-up internet, and I don't even think we had internet until I was maybe in ninth grade or tenth grade. Right. Um, so it was interesting times and definitely a transition uh, for the world. Oh, and yeah. that we, you know, when I started here at U of D, and then when I left U of D, the internet was a thing. It right. wasn't a thing when I when I started. Yeah. So it's really an interesting time to kind of go through high school. Yeah, but it took yeah. off very fast. And so then, so after U of D, you went to what college? I went to U of M Dearborn, right. and then I went to Cooley Law School in Lansing. So, and so, so of course you're a lawyer now, a defense attorney, right? That's right. I do criminal defense. I do most most of my work is in federal court. I do some work in in state court. Right. Um, and I also do immigration work. Yeah. Uh, primarily defending people from deportation. Right. And most of my clients are people that have criminal, some criminal issues that they've had in their past that leads them into um, facing deportation. So the immigration and criminals sort of go together. Right. So you, so what exactly, you know, or your background, all those fallacies, what got you into that world? Why did you decide to pick up that? Well, um, to be really honest, when I 
graduated from law school. It was 2007, the end of 2007. I passed the bar exam uh, and became a lawyer that fall. And um, we were at the height of the economic uh, crisis. Nice. Uh, things were really bad. Um, when I started law school, the outlook was pretty good for people to get jobs after. And then by the time I finished, it was just horrible. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> I started, uh, I decided that, you know, I was going to just try to do, figure it out on my own. I, you know, no jobs were available. I mean, even people that graduated at the top of their class just couldn't find stuff. The economy was that bad at the time. Um, so I uh, ordered a pizza after uh, uh, the day, two days, I think, after I passed the bar exam. And the pizza delivery guy who came to my door was complaining that he got a ticket on the way to deliver the pizza, and that's why he was a little bit late. And I said, well, hey, I'm a lawyer. I can help you out with that ticket. Wow. And that was my first case. Wow. <laughs> the day after that, I got another call uh, from a friend who, um, who uh, told me that a friend of his had gotten in trouble for drunk driving. Yeah. And uh, that was my second case. And it just kept going from there. And I ended up really enjoying uh, the, the practice of criminal defense. It wasn't something I initially expected to do, but it kind of fell right into uh, the values and, and some of the things that I uh, really believe are important in life. Yeah. Uh, one of them being social justice, a right. lot of which I picked up here at U of D. Yeah. Um, and you know, I find it very rewarding to help people who are going through a hard time in life. Oh yeah. Um, whether it's somebody who, you know, had a small issue and uh, maybe made a mistake and they're having to pay for it or somebody that is you know facing a serious charge or somebody who maybe uh, the victim of um, you know just the system and how it's set up yeah and you know I, I enjoy helping people and and I really view my job in criminal defense as uh, as one of service yeah uh, service to others. Uh, yeah. And so you mentioned earlier that uh, U of D uh, helped you find or discover a lot of your core values. And so what, what are those core values exactly? Well, one of them is just what I said is, is yeah. I, I try to live my life in service of others. Yeah. Uh, and being a man for others, of course, that is, you know, the big, <laughs> yeah. the big motto at U of D. Oh, yeah. And, you know, when, when I was in your shoes, I, I remember vividly remember thinking, oh, this is, you know, what kind of slogan is this? You know, this is kind of silly, like really. And then, you know, as you get older and you get out into the world and you move past the bubble of U of D and high school and you, you kind of realize, well, hey, a lot of those, you know, things were really good yeah. and they make a lot of sense, you know? And um, I find that when I when I truly um, look to serve others, it's when I find I think the most value myself as well. Um, and so that, really the slogan, men for others, is something that I think of almost daily. Um, and it's something that really has, in, has informed my daily life and, and the way that I practice law. So, let's follow that up. Um, the, I guess diversity and inclusion, the word, those words are thrown around a lot in a lot of different spaces and areas and a lot of different con contextual uh, situations, but what does it mean 
to you, if any, uh, in the realm of law, because uh, I don't really, I mean, I don't really know much in general when it comes to law, but when I've talked to, you know, lawyers and other people who are in that area, it's, it's either very different than how we use it every day, or they usually um, almost tell me that, you know, it's not really that big in some of the areas. So how do you see it in, in, your, in your line of work? So how do I see, like, the diversity and inclusion well, part of uh, yeah. what I do in practice? Is that kind of what you're yeah, asking? Yeah, I mean, also uh, what it means to you. Sure. Also. So I think that, you know, I mean, some of the other lawyers you may have talked to probably don't do what I do. I mean, I am a criminal defense lawyer, and I deal uh, with and work uh, in and against uh, the, you know, systems, white supremacist systems that were developed to mass incarcerate people of color. Yeah. And um, these systems are pretty much alive and well. I'm not saying that they are thriving, but um, they're still there. And it, you know, I, I, I do feel it is part of my job um, to stand up for people and, and try to make sure that I'm doing my best to ensure that they are not falling deeper and deeper into that system right. that was created really to keep them in it. Yeah. Um, and so that's something I take uh, very seriously and something that is a, it's a part of my job every day. Um, so it's, yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the greatest or the most direct link that what I do has to do with what I do on a daily basis has to do with, you know, the topics that you're interested in of diversity and inclusion. Right. And again, sort of putting that back to U of D, um, you know, I mean, I think I, I learned a lot about uh, justice in general, yeah. racial justice and racial uh, dynamics uh, from being here and being in a, in a very diverse environment. Yeah, I, I can say the same. A lot of that's where I learned most of my knowledge about you know the justice system has been through U of D and a few of those topics like the uh, either whether it be mandatory minimum sentencing or the like the three strike law they're very prevalent but very few people know about those things. How often do you encounter those kinds of you know uh, different policies and that were enacted like twenty thirty years ago? In a different era, but are still applied to this day when the scenario has changed a lot. Sure. Um, well, I, I deal with them often. Um, I'm, I can tell you about a couple of cases that I'm dealing with. Uh, one, and again, I'm not, you know, mentioning any names or of course, of course. any yeah. uh, details, but yeah. you know, uh, a, a, a man who is um, in his early 30s had gotten in trouble um, for. Um, selling drugs and being in uh, possession of a firearm uh, in 2017 is today, four years later, uh, facing a 15-year mandatory minimum right. uh, for what is really not a huge quantity of drugs and in possession of a gun that he was legally allowed to possess, but the issue was that it was in, uh, he was possessing it and the drugs at the same time. Right. Uh, since 2017, he has gone on to have a daughter. He completely reformed his life, is no longer in uh, or involved in uh, any sort of drug dealing or drug use. Yeah. He's just a different person. And it's the government that waited four years to do anything with his case. Right. And they could because of the statute of limitations. Um, and so it's really, you know, been 
uh, been tough and, I, and I've been advocating very hard for, for him and I think about him almost every day because we have uh, kids the same age yeah. and he's looking at 15 years mandatory so even if the judge wanted to say yeah. hey I don't think you deserve 15 years maybe you know you deserve a year or two or three the judge couldn't it's yeah. just a strict mandatory minimum and it it, it takes away um, the ability of a judge to look at someone as an individual and as a person and fashion or formulate uh, a sentence uh, that or or a punishment that would um, that would be tailored or, or individualized to them I mean everyone's different people don't come in um, people come in all shapes and sizes people have uh, different life stories and different circumstances that led them to uh, come into a courtroom yeah. or to be charged with a crime and you can't just blanket say hey you know sorry you get caught with this you've got 15 years period yeah. I mean it doesn't it's it's not it's an antiquated um, thing that's still around in our justice system right. and unfortunately people are still uh, subject to these things today yeah um, I'm also uh, working on a, a case of a, a man who is currently um, serving a life sentence for a nonviolent drug offense and we're working on trying to get the governor to hopefully um, commute the rest of his sentence. Uh, he was sentenced to multiple consecutive sentences in the 90s. Right. Um, and the way that consecutive sentencing works is you have one sentence stacked up on another, right? Yeah. So if you get you could get five 20 year sentences, which you know would add up to 100 years, and you do them one after the other. So you do your first 20, then you do your second 20, yeah and it keeps going um, and consecutive sentencing was allowed in the 90s in the state of Michigan yeah. uh, and you know he's serving a life sentence um, he's in his 70s and he's an old man now and um, you know hasn't been in trouble at all since yeah. he's been in prison he's been in there over 20 years at this point close to 30 and I think it's, you know, enough is enough. So we're, we're working to advocate now with the governor to try to uh, commute, commute his sentence and, and release him early. Right. Um, so that's, a, you know, e another case that I'm dealing with, with someone who is, in my opinion, a, a victim of um, the failed war on drugs yeah. that uh, I think we all know had disastrous consequences for primarily black and brown communities. Right. Um, and of mass incarceration and again these systems that were built uh, to do what they're doing to this man and, and keep him locked up so yeah. uh, so that's just you know hopefully I answered your question with some good examples very well yeah um, so you said it's very antiquated and it's but it's also a huge system and so um, when you finally you know, on the individual level you might win a few victories right for one or two people but when you look at the grand scheme of things, like the system itself isn't changing, so not only like, how do you, how, how do you still go to your job and say recognize that the system's not changing, but still find the motivation, but also what change do you want to see, and uh, is there do you have any plans to try to go for the larger, larger scale? So you know when you're young and you and you start to see, um, you know you have a very idealistic view of the world and a view of change and how change should happen 
and you kind of think like, oh, well, everybody should just realize that this is not working and we should just change it, right? And, right. and that's kind of what you think when you're young and you haven't you know, worked within these systems. And then you get into the system and you realize, well, this is not something that's going to change overnight. Right. Um, and there are too many forces um, at play that are you know, fighting against one another that just make you know, quick fast and comprehensive change next to near impossible. And so I think how you do it is you is baby steps and working, as you said, on an individual level for individual people and trying to, um, and trying to fight the, the systems and, and, uh, and, the, and, and, you know, some of these issues in individual cases. I'm a very big believer in the fact that um, there's a lot of power in individual in individual stories, yeah. Um, you know, look at the news today. The two biggest cases today uh, in November of 2021 are two individual cases: Kyle Rittenhouse and uh, um, the Ahmed Arbery uh, case. Right. And you know, our national conversation right now is centering around these two individual cases. So there's a lot of power in representing individuals. Yeah. Um, and a lot of change can happen as a result of conversations that come out from individual cases and about individual cases. Right. As far as changing the actual system goes, uh, it's something that has to happen on a macro level, on a much bigger level. And I think the best thing to do is, is and what I do is continue to advocate with politicians and people um, who I think are the best at, uh, who I think would best uh, promote the kind of change that I think is important. Yeah. Um, vote for those people, support those people, including financially supporting them right. in campaigns and, and, and with their elections, um, putting whatever support you can behind that. I mean, in Michigan, we have um, seen a lot of pretty decent change yeah. in uh, this in Governor Whitmer's administration. Yeah. We've got the biggest uh, criminal justice reform package uh, that came out since I've been practicing law. One of the big aspects of it was um, expungements and people getting things off their record, right. um, which is huge because people are now, you know, if they qualify for the expungement, which a lot of people now do, won't be saddled with having to write down on a job application that yeah. they have a felony or, yeah. uh, and again, just having a felony record is again part of that the system um, that was built to keep people down. Right. Yeah. I mean, once you have that felony, it's almost impossible to do anything that, you know, most people do right. on a regular basis, you know? Right. And so, I guess, I guess uh, I'll talk about, I guess, stepping aside from the legal aspect so much and more, I guess, on the moral aspect. So, as a defense attorney, you have to, a lot of times, deal with um, people who are in really tough situations, bad situations. Um, and so, I guess... How do you deal with those situations when it comes to like, let's say, um, like a, a, hom a case where it's like homicide, right? And so whether they're guilty or not, like once they're condemned, like what do you say to them? How do you, how do you try to, you know, find that light at the end of the tunnel for them and say there's still a way out? Well, um, you know, I, I get, I, I get, I'll start with a question that you didn't ask me, but I think it goes into the, your, your question. Um, you know, I oftentimes get, how do you represent those people, right? Yeah. As if everyone that I represent is, you know, some evil, e evil person that, you know, deserves yeah. to be 
severely punished or needs to be banished from society. Right. Um, and that goes back to another value that I learned at U of D, and that is to find the good in everyone. I think it, if I remember it right, I think at U of D we're taught to find Jesus within everyone, that there's a little bit of God or a little bit of Jesus in every single person. Yeah. And so when I first take on a case, even if it's a really bad case with horrible accusations involving, you know, a murder or a rape or something that, you know, you don't even want to think about, you, you have to go back to the person that you're representing and think, what led them to this point in life? Uh, why are they here? How did they get here? And when you realize that these people are human and that they've had human and real life experiences that may have led them down the wrong path at some point, you can see the good in them. You can see the Jesus in them. You can yeah. see the God in them. And that helps, I think, you know, to really, uh, it, you know, again, back to the system, the system is meant to dehumanize people. Right. And, you know, rehumanizing them or having their lawyer see them as a human is something that I think is, um, is really helpful to them yeah. and valuable. Um, but also I think it, 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 it is what helps them see the light at the end of the tunnel. I mean, you know, I don't win every case. I've had, you know, times where I have people have been sentenced to very long prison terms, right. uh, including life without parole. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, at a bare minimum, uh, having a lawyer that can, you know, see the human part of them and show them that, hey, even though everyone else in the world might not think that you're a good person or that you're even a person, I'm in your corner and I got your back and I'm here for you. Right. And I and that's the little I can do to, to help them along with whatever they're going to have to deal with in the rest of their life. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I guess bouncing off that a bit, there was a uh, case concerning ICE, I think, that you covered. I don't know how long ago it was. It was yeah. concerning a man who was deported and then he was he died from like what was it exactly I think it was uh, he died of uh, a lot of things but uh, the technical medical reason for his death was um, that he had a heart attack and right. it was primarily due to lack of basic medical care yeah so I don't know too much about that situation but immigra immigration has especially recently become a very prevalent topic among media among the populace among politicians too and so I guess not only how does that link back to the U of D, you know, core uh, values, but how, 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 would you, how do you deal with these cases? Because I, I can't think that the, the, you deal with these the same way that you deal with any others because they're pretty different than, you know, because you're dealing with ICE and the federal government, you know, fighting against you. Right. It's, it's a different system, and it's a tougher system to deal with, uh, but it is another system of oppression. And, um, you know, there's no reason why we need to, why we should have a system that jails people that are trying to come to this country just to seek a better life. Right. Um, you know, uh, one thing I'm really against is use of the term illegal. No human being is illegal uh, yeah. just by the fact that you exist. And it, it's really a... Um, one thing I learned at U of D is that language is very important and the words you use carry meaning and that's a word that you just shouldn't refer to a human being as an illegal. No one is illegal. Mm. Um, so uh, 
with regard to the case that you're referring to, it was a, a really horrible case. Um, and, and one of the the struggle for the past four years is kind of five years now has kind of defined a lot of my um, career. And uh, in 2017, the Trump administration uh, decided that they were going to push the Iraqi government to begin accepting or taking back people that had been ordered deported from the United States. So, um, you know, if you look at the history of Iraq in the 90s, uh, Saddam was in power, the yeah. U.S. had no relationship with him or with the, with the country. And, you know, in 2003, obviously, we had the Iraq War, we invaded. And then after 2003, um, President Bush, uh, uh, President Obama, I mean, neither administration thought that Iraq was safe enough for people that had essentially lived the majority of their lives in the United States, and especially Chaldeans who are Christians, yeah. to be deported to Iraq. But of course, you know, unfortunately, the Trump administration found or thought that that was uh, something acceptable to do. So um, many of my clients uh, in, in that case or in, in those cases ended up being a big class action lawsuit that was filed along with the ACLU as lead counsel and a bunch of other cooperating attorneys and groups. Um, but uh, in 2017, in June, ICE uh, did a mass raid primarily targeting the Chaldean uh, Iraqi Christian population here in Metro Detroit. And I took that very personally because these were people that I knew, some of them from growing up. These are people that I would I mean, these are people in my community. I'd see them at weddings, I'd see them at funerals, and all of a sudden they're just picked up off the street and put in jail, and ICE is saying, we're gonna put you on a plane back to Iraq. And the majority of these people are folks that came here when they were babies, two, three years old, five years old. They don't speak Arabic. They've never been to Iraq since the time they left. They have no relatives there. They have no friends there. Uh, if they were to get dropped off in the airport, they wouldn't know where to go. Not to mention the fact that they face real serious uh, concerns with regard to not only being tortured or killed by the Iraqi government itself, yeah. who's heavily aligned with Iran and very anti-American, um, but you know, just individual people on the street who are not fans of the U.S. or fans of uh, people of Christian background. Um, so, you know, it was a horrible, horrible uh, thing that the administration did, and we fought it tooth and nail. Unfortunately, we weren't able to save every single person from deportation, although we did manage to save the majority. Uh, and the story that you're referring to in particular is <clears throat> a man by the name of Jimmy Aldawood. Jimmy was not even born in Iraq. He was actually born in Greece. His family were refugees from Iraq. Uh, his mom was pregnant with him when, when they left. And they fled, <clears throat> fleeing, of course, Saddam's regime. Yeah. And um, Jimmy was born in Greece. And uh, Greece does not like, is not like the United States uh, where we have birthright citizenship. So in the U.S., if you're born on U.S. soil, you're automatically a U.S. citizen. Yeah. In Greece, uh, you, if you're born on Greek soil, it doesn't matter. You have to be born to two Greek parents or you're not Greek. Oh, wow. So Jimmy uh, did not have 
Greek citizenship. He only had Iraqi citizenship because he retained the citizenship of his parents. Yeah. And so when he came to the U.S., again, he was just a baby. Uh, he didn't even have any recollection of Greece. Grew up in kind of a tough neighborhood in Detroit, uh, Seven Mile and John R. neighborhood, not far from here, which was, you know, at the time in the 80s and 90s where most of the newcomers would, would come from the Chaldean community, and that's where they would reside. Um, and it was a rough neighborhood. And Jimmy uh, ended up having, uh, as he grew older, a number of mental health issues. Yeah. Um, and he was a schizophrenic. He um, self-medicated with drugs. Um, and he was in and out of jail. And majority of his life didn't even realize that he was not a U.S. citizen. <laughs> because oh, wow. he had just been born here. Right. So... Um, his parents were uh, were not too were not really um, aware of the need to get him a citizenship when he was a minor. You know, people living in poverty, I think, uh, kind of uh, you know cost money to become a citizen. You have to do a lot of stuff, and yeah. it's you know when you don't have a lot of money, it's it's not really a priority. And so he just kind of fell through the cracks. Um, in the end, uh, Jimmy ended. He was essentially homeless. Uh, ICE picked him up off of the street. They found him in Detroit. I don't know how they found him. I think it was at a homeless shelter. Somehow somebody called and they picked him up. And uh, next thing you know, he was in Iraq and had no idea what to do. Yeah. Didn't speak Arabic. Didn't have his medication. He was a diabetic. Uh, mind you, he's you know has all these mental health issues, and he had a drug problem, um, and so he was just lost. Uh, and it wasn't it wasn't long after that he ended up dying. Yeah. Uh, and that affected me a lot, affected me greatly, and it really um, has informed my practice quite a bit. I view every single time I'm representing somebody and and fighting against them being deported. It's it truly is a life or death case. Yeah, it truly yeah, is. Yeah. Um, Jimmy was a sad story because he, I think, is sort of a, <clears throat> you know, multiple systems failed Jimmy. Systems that we think are good ones in the U.S. Um, mental health system failed him. Uh, the criminal justice system obviously failed him. Our immigration system failed him. Yeah. Um, and he was just this guy who got caught in the you know the failure of all three of these systems and he died way earlier than he should have you know you think if we had better mental health resources and systems in this country maybe that would have helped him out if our criminal justice system was more focused on rehabilitation rather than on punishment maybe that would have helped him out maybe. you know if our immigration system wasn't so uh wasn't so Deport, deportation happy yeah. uh, maybe that would have helped him out because he could have stayed here and he wouldn't have died if he would have been in the United States yeah. the sole cause of his death was his deportation gotcha so I guess my last question I don't know if it's the best one but what was he like uh, kind of wild <laughs> a little crazy I mean honestly you know he was he was just uh, uh, you know I mean, he, he was funny, yeah. you know, you would, uh, he, he was street smart, right? So he knew how to, he could talk to anyone. 
And, you know, I think probably the majority of his adult life, he was homeless. And so he was just, you know, he knew how to, he had that kind of, I think humor was kind of the way he would get by. And so he could make you laugh and and talk to you and just joke around. Um, And the thing is, too, like, a lot of the, I remember vividly visiting, um, you know, the, uh, the jail where a lot of the detainees that were facing deportation in Iraq were housed and they were all in the same place. Yeah. And, you know, they had a whole pod or, you know, group of like 20 of them in the same, you know, in the same pod, which is like a, a you know, area where they, where multiple people are locked up in the same room or same area. Right. And everybody knew who he was. And even though he was, you know, he would yell at people sometimes and his schizophrenia would act up. Everybody knew him and took care of him, you yeah. know? It, it, somebody had an extra um, few bucks, they'd buy him some food. I mean, he was just, you know, he was just kind of, he was a character, and he was loved by everyone. Yeah. I don't, I mean, he was just kind of a gentle soul, you know? Yeah. Um, misunderstood by the world. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of your day to have this conversation. Um, I know... This has been very, uh, not only very informational, but uh, I'm going to be thinking about this a lot in the next, next couple of weeks. Um, so All right, well, glad I gave you something to think about. Thank you. I've enjoyed it too, and uh, I continue to be impressed by U of D and the fine young men that it produces like yourself. So thanks Thank for you. having me. Thank you.